Welcome to the Directions Mag Geo Inspirations podcast series with Joseph Kursky. Greetings, folks. Welcome to another installment of the Geo Inspirations column with Directions Magazine. Joseph Kursky here, your host. I'm very pleased today. I know you folks are going to enjoy this. I've got Blaze Andromeda Folk here with me. Blaze, greetings and welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for the time. Absolutely. It's uh, always a pleasure, and it's great to get the word out about what I do up in Alaska. Yeah, thanks. I was just going to say that uh, Blaze is joining me from from the last frontier, from Alaska. And Blaze, if you could describe what exactly you do up there. I say up because uh, for me in Colorado, it's sort of a northwest, uh, you know, across a couple states, across a little bit of Canada on into Alaska. But uh, also, if you could describe a little bit about how you got to the position that you are in today, that would be fascinating. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. So currently, my title is Natural Resource Specialist with the state of Alaska um, Division of Natural Resources. In actuality, I'm a coal mining inspector and permitter. So the job gets split between on the ground, looking for environmental releases or housekeeping habits, um, construction of bridges and valley fills, et cetera. And then in the office, you're going back and forth with the Clean Water Act, your NIPTES permits, how everything relates to the state management plan for post-mine reclamation, making sure everything aligns with the Mm -hmm. goals of the state. A big part of my job is GIS work. I'm very, very thankful to have a boss who is pushing for new technology, especially in the UAV realm. And so a large portion of our job is to take what's on the ground and then say that it is what's in the permit as far as their regrade and where their drainages are, where the pits are located, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. most recently we've been going through some bond release maps, which are a way for them to get back the money they bond in the mining process for environmental cleanup. And that it's in three stages. The first stage is on how the regrade performs compared on the ground versus on paper. And that old school way would be pulling transects across the whole thing, random transects, and saying that it's close enough. Mm -hmm. Now we have moved into using UAVs and using the transects as a check for it. And so it's really neat to come back and take your surface from a drone as well as the surface that was permitted and overlay them together and look for discrepancies. Um, I like to call it topographic reconciliation is kind of how I feel about it, saying mm-hmm. where it's off, where it's not. And then the next step up is the vegetative cover. And we have a near infrared sensor that lets us use NDVI and it's great. You can pick out dead grass versus rocks on the edge of outslopes or your alders versus your spruce. It's fantastic. Um, My background is in gold mining, actually. I'm from Cripple Creek, Colorado. Ah, indeed. Biggest gold producing district ever. I stumbled into geography in college because it's the one class I could read the textbook for my freshman year and enjoy. 
And <laughs> I ended up working at the gold mine and they didn't have much in the way of a GIS person on site. And so my first internship was actually taking the surveyor's information and the AutoCAD information and creating the projection in ArcMap. So not quite a typical intern experience mm-hmm. where you're, I was just kind of let loose and told to do it right, which I think is great in hindsight. Well, it's a good testimony for, you know, the listener to say, hey, you know, if you don't know how to do something and your intern supervisor, internship supervisor, or your current position supervisor asks you to do something, it's okay to say, mm, I, I, I'm not familiar with that, but I can learn. And you just Absolutely. did it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that's a huge part of making a job enjoyable as well is the, if you knew everything about your job, it wouldn't be enjoyable. You, the ability to show up at a workplace and seek new information or new ways to do the same task that may be more efficient or more accurate. It's, it's great to be in that opportunity. Blaze, you know I'm in the field of education. I actually might use that uh, phrase of yours. If you knew everything about your job, it wouldn't be enjoyable. I, if, 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 if you grant me permission, I, I, I'd, I'd like to be able to use that in the future because it is so appropriate. Yeah, Espe- absolutely. Especially as we move forward in, I mean, you were touching a bit on this, the, the advent of new techniques, new tools, hardware, software, data, et cetera, that we're using in the field of geospatial technology, UAVs being one of them, that is more essential than ever, right? That we that we embrace, okay, we're lifelong learners and we are immersed in a field that is rapidly changing. And, and in so doing our jobs, we are also advancing the whole field itself, right? We're not waiting for it to happen. You, for example, at the Alaska DNR, you're actually pushing the boundaries forward, not just in your own DNR, but others, other agencies would look at Alaska DNR, the Department of Natural Resources and say, I want to do that too. Blaze, how do I do that? I salute you. Can you describe a little bit of, you know, I work with um, universities, uh, community colleges, and other levels of education, primary and secondary, after-school programs. In the universities and community colleges I've been to, just about every single remote sensing program, and this isn't going to be any surprise to you or probably most of the listeners, but most, if not all of them, have embraced some sort of UAV technology over the last four or five years. How many UAVs do you actually have there at the Department of Natural Resources and what are your plans, you know, going forward into this now the 2020s in terms of that technology? Where where do you want to see it move to? As for how many UAV we have in DNR, I can't quite speak to that. We have like Division of Forestry as part of DNR and I know they use UAV for fire mapping. But as but my division doesn't interact with them so much and my boss takes the lead on mm-hmm. all of the DNR UAV for he's the lead for essentially DNR UAV, as I see it. Mm-hmm. Um, as our coal mining program, we have one, oh, I'm not sure quite what's active right now, one or two Mavic Airs, one or two Phantoms, and an M210 with a multi-spectral camera on it. And so the Mavic Airs and the Phantoms are both, I, I wouldn't necessarily call them recreational grade, the air might be, but the Phantom turned out really good data. And the M210 is certainly a, an industrial use drone. We also combine this with uh, propeller points, which are geo-referenced panels that we place out. And so it's essentially a checkered square, maybe two feet by two feet. Mm-hmm. And someone will go place those out in the field. And 
the drone will fly it. Essentially, it's flying GPS receivers. So it's already kind of geo-referencing it for more accuracy. And that's been a huge help as well. Like, it's not just the drone you have. It's your support software. We use AggieSoft to model our images as well. Uh, some Ag- mm-hmm. We've done some drone map as well as Pix4D, but AggieSoft has produced the most consistent results so far, especially without the... I've heard it referred to like the black box effect of you can put result A, you can put your data in and you'll get an answer out, but you don't quite know exactly what's happening. And we found AggieSoft lets us really dial that in more. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly has little... revolutionized many fields. I remember back in my USGS days, we had a whole team of photogrammetrists, right, that would create 2D and 3D models from, at that time, aerial imagery. And you're right, some of these tools are so push-button these days is that, you, you know, it's wonderful, and I don't pine for the old clunky days. It's, it, you know, we are definitely standing on the shoulders of giants, <laughs> right? These photograms just really yeah. knew their stuff. But on the other hand, sometimes from a teaching or a research perspective, it's, you, you do want to dig into what these tools actually do so you can make some adjustments if you need to. Mm-hmm. I'm right with you there. Yeah. Thinking about the DNR, I have such respect for these Department of Natural Resources, having worked with um, you know, people in, in uh, well, just a few months ago, I was up at the uh, Minnesota GIS-LIS conference, and they have great support from their Department of Natural Resources in that whole, remember that uh, DNR Garmin, D- DNR GPS program that many of us used for years to get our data from a, from yeah. a GPS unit into uh, something like ArcGIS? I mean, that all came from the DNR. Yeah, that's great. Uh-huh. Yeah, I actually just referenced a friend who's at a gold mine in Mali to that same little tool. Uh, it's wonderful. I, it, I've mm-hmm. used it every place I've been. Yeah. That. That's one of my favorite tools. Going. Indeed. Well, and also thinking about your particular Department of Natural Resources, I mean, just the vast uh, terrain uh, the, the the vast area, the weather conditions, et cetera, that you have to deal with, it just must be a great challenge, but also a rewarding one because you're actually helping people in the state and also, you know, in your interaction with uh, departments in other states and other parts of the world, uh, you're, you're definitely impacting, I think, the planet in a positive way. Hey, could you describe this a little bit? When you were actually in Cripple Creek, you know, just out of uh, university and also in your current job, do you actually get to go into mines? Yeah. Yeah, of okay. course. That's my, uh-huh. not, maybe not the best part, but one of my favorite parts. So Cripple Creek is an open pit mine. It's probably about a thousand feet deep right now. And that's basically just a giant hole in the ground, just like a sand and gravel pit or a quarry. The coal mines in Alaska are similar to the open pit, but they're a strip pit is how it's referred to. And so they are not near as deep. Mm -hmm. And what's able to happen is after the initial cut goes in, you can, that, that material has to go somewhere. That's not the coal bearing strata. But from there on, your overburden or spoils, depending on your terminology, can go into your open hole. And so you're never disturbing miles and miles of ground that's open. You're concurrent reclam- concurrently reclaiming the land as you go. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. As far as underground mines, I've been in underground mines in Colorado and Nevada, and that's a, you either love it or hate it, I think, and I love it, but 
it's it's a unique experience and that opens a whole new world as far as GIS mapping. I believe an Australian company just came out with a drone designed to fly underground drifts. Hmm. Map them out with LiDAR. Mm -hmm. Wow. And this is huge from mining industries, very safety conscious. And this is a great safety tool. You lose an expensive piece of equipment, but it's not a life. Right, right. And yep. That's every, everything in great. And as far as underground mines in Alaska, I have not been in one. So one of the reasons why I was interested in chatting with you about that for a minute or two is I'm a caver. So anything you know underground with all kinds of you know exploration possibilities you know i love physical geography uh always have geology i used to work at usgs uh you know it's just it's just fascinating to me and on another angle blaze if you don't mind there are people that um you know have very strong opinions of course on energy and and rightly so right as we move forward into the 20 first century here yeah. now in the third decade it's like okay we've got some serious power requirements for our planet and always increasing how are we going to power that planet for a sustainable future and knowing a little bit about what you just described i imagine there are just numerous regulations environmental regulations of various kinds that you just have to juggle and deal with how do you how do you keep that all straight not just the volume of the regulations that must be out there and environmental guidelines and so on but but they're probably always changing, right? So how do you how do you deal with that in addition to all the GIS things that you're doing, the remote sensing things that you're doing, the the inspections, et, et cetera? Um, so <laughs> great questions. Um, coal, good or bad, is federally regulated. All coal mining in the country has to meet the Federal Surface Control Mining and Reclamation Act of, I believe, 1977. And so we can meet or exceed the federal code for that section. And that's where we get our, we call it ASMACRA, Alaska Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act. Mm -hmm. And that's our rules and regs. Um, as far as mining in general goes, hard rock mining is not federally regulated, as far as I know. And so every state's kind of left up to its own interpretation of what's, what's reclamation, what's not, what will we allow you know, acreage-wise, pit depth, et cetera. And to address the energy topic is a, you know, I, I don't know how, uh, I'm not, what's It's probably not, beyond the scope of our interview, but, but just any sort of insights that, you know, you might have. Again, you know, the, this, is, this is primarily aimed at, you know, encouraging people to go into, think about different career paths. But it's just really fascinating to have someone like you on here that's actually living and breathing this stuff you know, on, on the job every day, you're, you're face to face with, yeah, uh, this is a reality. And what can I do in the DNR to make sure that however we're going to get energy, it is done in the best, least obtrusive, least harmful way possible using geotechnologies and other tools. Yes, I think that is, and using all of our technology is a really big difference maker, I think as well. The coal mines that we look after Usabelli Coal Mine, they've started using UAVs as well to fly their dumps and their pits and have up to current, you know, up to today's data. They can go out and fly it and see exactly what it looks like today. And then if they need to re-engineer something that's more efficient and less environmentally destructive, they can. Instead of using maps that were made three years ago because they haven't updated their maps mm -hmm. until 
you know, except for every five years, for example. Um, as far as the conditions on this coal mine, it's there's no chemicals used on site and it's relatively small. It'll sound really big to you, but last year they extracted less than a million tons of coal, which it sounds like a lot, but that's, you know, some states spill more than that in a year. Mm -hmm. And then all of our coal ends up going to interior Alaska right now to Fairbanks and the military bases near Fairbanks. Okay. So it's not even exported out of the state. Nope. And I can't, you know, I don't know if you want to put this interview or not, but I'm not necessarily a coal fan, but there is no alternative in Fairbanks that I've heard it's between that's pretty calm year round. Matt, you know, they're down to three hours of daylight right now mm -hmm. and they can't get uh, liquid natural gas and there's no pipeline. Yep. So, well, you know, I like I like for students and the general public to think about the realities of our world. Uh, you know, at the current time, 2020, we have a variety of ways that we get energy, right? Some of them are, you know, things that we've done for what, 150 or 200 years. Some of them are new technologies, but whatever ways we can get it, well, eventually, I, I'm an optimist. I think eventually we're going to get to all energy is going to be a sustainable, you know, clean source. We're going to get there. It's just going to, there's going to be some bumps along the road before we can innovate in the kinds of situations like you're describing. The, the reality is you've got low light, you've got, uh, uh, you know, permafrost, et cetera, uh, and, and physical challenges out there. So it's not like we can, you know, you and I in our, you know, geography, environmental, um, uh, you know, backgrounds, we'd love to be able to say, yes, <laughs> wouldn't it be grand if all agriculture was sustainable, all energy sources were sustainable, you know, clean and sustainable, all food production, all tourism, you know, everything was eco-friendly. In my wanderings around the planet, I've been very encouraged by, you know, people like you that are innovative, they're using technology, they're using data, they're using their own brains to make wise and smart decisions. So I, I actually am an optimist. I think we'll get there. I really believe that we will. I agree. And I love that mining historically has been a little bit of a closed-minded, it's got a reputation for being a closed-minded industry. And I've really kind of taken pride in coming in as someone who would mm -hmm. identify as environmentally friendly and trying to approach mining from that aspect. I understand mining is needed and nobody likes to look at it, uh -huh. but how can we do this in the best way possible is my goal. Yeah, well said. I look at a mine site. And, I, and I tell students, look, y y you know, as you're going into careers, how can you make a difference? It may be in a established industry that maybe some people would not want to go into, maybe like yours, that some students are like, no, there's no way I'd ever, I'd ever go into that because of, uh, you know, maybe some of the history and, and so on. But, but wouldn't you want to you just have an open mind about maybe you can make a huge difference in that agency or in that whole industry like you're doing, Blaze? I, I just really salute you. I, I mean, we want smart people to be in energy for one and in health and in business and in engineering and in uh you know tourism etc making smarter decisions and i'm wondering um you know as you described your your journey in this was there a person a class a topic that had most inspired you along the way yeah absolutely um there's a yeah, I, I can call him old. I think he's over 60. Um, I've worked with him 
I knew him as a kid and he, his name's Gary Horton. He's from Washington, moved out to Cripple Creek in 72, I think, I believe. Um, worked underground because that's what there was for work in Cripple Creek in the 70s. And he left the district and went on to get his geophysical, I believe it's geophysics degree from James Madison University and actually came back to the mine site to work because he loved living there so much. But he really taught me that it's all about trying to find your niche when you're at a job. You know, not mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're going to go to a job and there's no way you're going to like every part of every of the job every day. It's just reality, I think. But can you find something that makes you happy? And especially, can you find something that is satisfying and beneficial to your employer at the same time? And it may not be something that was already being done. You know, he was really great. He started a big recycling program at the mine site. I mean, it's not groundbreaking, but Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was personally satisfying to him. The company loved it because it's great. It's recycling. Not just the PR, but, you know, their trash went down. So they're shipping less dumpsters of garbage out. Nice. You know, he's been a huge influence in how I approach how I look at a job and day-to-day and not just day-to-day, but what can I do today that will help me in three months of whether it's part of my day-to-day daily assigned duties or not. Can I go above and beyond to make it better? Uh, Well said. Thanks for sharing. Uh, A couple of things that you touched on, I'd I'd just like to expand a little bit. First of all, there are some listeners, I'm sure, that are pushing that 60-year-old mark or have exceeded it, so I just wanted to encourage them. Uh, okay, you've been around in, you know, in geo, enviro, GIS for a while, decades, maybe since the 20th century, but uh, you still have a lot of contributions to make, and so be encouraged. I mean, Blaze has got a, a really good mentor, person he looked up to, and um, so I just want to encourage, you know, there's a lot of people involved with geo-mentoring, for example. Also, the second thing, um, I was at GMU about two months ago, very impressed by the faculty and the students there uh, and their, their, their various um, programs. One of the things that they're doing now is they're in, embedding GIS in their school of business, which is really exciting oh, wow. because in marketing, supply chain management, site selection, et cetera, they are using well, they don't call it GIS per se. It's usually location analytics in a lot of these business schools, but I don't care what they call it. The good thing is that they're empowering those students to think spatially and use geospatial technologies to, um, and this is another thing you touched on, to benefit your employer. It's great if you care about the environment. Hey, great, I do too, and hopefully everybody does, but how are you going to, as you, I think, well put it, benefit your employer by the perspectives, the skills, um, the problem-solving abilities that you that you have. I think you you, you put that really well. Benefit your employer. It, it's it's not about you. It, sure, we want to all be lifelong learners, but if you go to your prospective employer, say, and say, well, I want to learn more about the environment, or I want to get out in the field, or I want to learn more GIS or remote sensing. Well, great. Why should they pay you to do that? Right? What value are you going to bring to that organization? Uh, which sounds kind of you know common sense, but I think it's important to remind people that it is you're benefiting your employer uh, and it is really a team effort it is, unless you're a sole proprietor of your own company. It is really all about yeah, how do you bring value to your employer so that the employer can bring value to, in your case, the state of Alaska and the citizens of the state. Yeah, that's 
a great way to put it. You know, one of your interview questions was how do what do I think is the most important thing to work on as far as education, STEM, mm-hmm. the racial community. And I just wrote down not getting stuck in your, you know, I've, I really think that we, we don't like change as people. Most people don't like change. And it's really easy to kill, you know, show up, open arc map and just plug and chug the way you always have. Maybe there's a better way. And the open-mindedness to seek it out or at least be willing to listen when someone approaches with new ideas that are outside the norm or maybe just not available in your area currently and you could be the one to introduce it. I think that's really big for innovation and advancement of the geospatial technologies. Yeah, thanks for the words of wisdom. Um, I've not heard that plug and chug phrase before, Blaze. So uh, that was a that was an interesting one. But I, I, I get your point. It is uh, we are always telling folks that as well. It's great to have these tools in ArcGIS Pro, ArcMap, or whatever tool you're using. But it's your brain that is the most important tool, right? You are the one that is framing the the questions and you're thinking about the problems to solve and also think about problems maybe that your employer hasn't even told you to solve, but you're just being observant, say, I want to solve that problem like the like the person you described earlier. Hey, there's no recycling program here. I'm going to start one. Okay, great. Do it. Yeah, encouraging people to you know think outside the software box, think outside the even the the set of problems that is um, part of your day to day work. Uh, that's exactly the kind of people that that we need on our planet to uh, yeah to move us forward. And isn't it an interesting, Blaze, that you know as the years have gone on now, uh, that we are having more and more different kinds of folks with different backgrounds and a diversity of opinions and thoughts and so on from different disciplines that are in geospatial now. You know, we've got the sociologists and the economists and the, you know, even people that have come up in from art and, you know, uh, you know business, uh, engineering now, data science and other computer science and other fields that are really lending a lot of richness to our whole uh, profession and, and beyond. It's really an exciting time. It is. And I, I like to think of anything, you know, anything that's on the earth can be mapped in my mind. And if you map it with a technology, I think that's some, in some regards, a geospatial technology. It's Indeed. And, and the whole, how you approach it. and mm-hmm. The boundaries of what we consider to be a map now are, are rapidly transforming, aren't they? When you look at uh, things like uh, the flowing data blog and some of the visualizations coming out from uh, the New York Times even. I mean, you know, a whole wide variety of sources nowadays. Sure, think critically about where those sources are and who created them and what classification method they used and, you know, all that kind of core stuff. But um, that said, what we think of in terms of, of geo-visualization is rapidly changing and expanding. And I think for for the better, it is, it is lent, it's lending a lot of... Um, Again, like we touched on earlier, new ways of solving problems, and, and and it doesn't have to be. In some ways, we we, you know, you and I and others, we love mapping, and that's why we got into this. But the goal is not really to make the perfect map, right, or to to make the perfect visualization. It's to actually think about and solve problems, and so having these boundaries become a bit blurred and expanded about what is a geo-visualization, I think is an exciting uh, development. Yeah, I, ag- I totally agree. 
when I was a kid, we'd go through the local Cripple Creek Museum and they had, I'll call it a map for lack of a better term, but it was a glass display case and it had the underground mine tunnels stacked up on glass plates Ooh, for each yeah. 100 feet level. And it was so fascinating as a kid to be able to look at this and say, well, here's where I live and 600 feet below me, there's a tunnel. It's just amazing the way we visualize stuff. And now, obviously, we aren't turning out these historic, great big blocky dioramas, I think is the term. And we're, you know, shifting more to web maps and quicker access data. But the innovation is still there and the different ways to visualize data. Not everything has to be, you know, point line polygon 2D, throw it up and it, it does the job. But to design a map that answers more questions or answers the question better in the same way, you know, a map is, mm -hmm. in the end, it's still a visualization in your head at the, in the end of the day. Yeah, good point. Um, you know, a couple things there. I visited the Molly Kathleen gold mine in Cripple Creek once uh, for people that are interested. Uh, it, they give tours. It's a fascinating, you go, it's a, it's a shaft. You go down on a, uh, what do you call It's like an elevator, skip. right? Blaze. You go down on this, you what is go it down called? on a, on a skip. It's skip. called a skip. Yeah. It is, it is absolutely amazing. You know, that you've got a thousand ish feet down. It's just absolutely amazing. And then the second thing you touched on, um, that's part of the reason why I like these tactile methods of understanding uh, spatial concepts. So you've probably seen these as well. Each one of them is different and unique, but um, uh, I love them all. And those are those um, 3D sandboxes. Those, you know, with a, they usually have some sort of camera above them, and you've got a yeah. physical sand that you're moving around. Some actually uh, simulate, okay, now we're going to drop some water, some rainwater on the landscape. And, and where does it, where's the water pool? And I, I just love those. I want one for my house. <laughs> be so I love those have. things. A lot of universities build those. And again, they get the, you know, the uh, um, different people around campus to that, that are, you know, handy with, you know, carpentry, but also the, the GIS people. And uh, I just, I just think they're great. Kind of along the same lines. I've always loved those, those um, stream tables, you know, where you've got a pump and it's pumping water to the top of it and the whole thing is tilted. And so you see the braiding oh. of the streams and the meanders. I love those things. Yeah. yeah the actual ability to see it in 3D. Uh -huh. Some of them don't even have real sand. They're like little polymer balls and they have different densities. So you can simulate, you know, what happens when you've got dense material versus more lightweight material and how does it erode and how does it deposit I just think those are great. They're, they're not cheap, but they're great uh, teaching tools. Uh, I used to see those displayed at the Geological Society of America conferences, and I've always, been, I've, I always spent way too much time at those exhibits. I just love those. <laughs> so I'm right wow. with you yeah. on the tactile. There's still a lot of value in that. And on a really, really simple example, I sometimes use this super easy, but again, I think kind of a powerful way of teaching just plain old contour lines, topographic maps. You get these clear salad trays from like a deli. They're plastic. Okay. And, and you, you lay each one of them on a topo map. And with each layer, you're drawing a different contour line. And so when you stack these, maybe nine or 10 of them, 
you actually, then you can rotate around. You actually see the ridge or the pit or the esker or the, you know what I mean? The valley. You're, you're seeing it yeah, you know, yeah. with this clear, with these, with these drawn lines on it. It's just, again, it's a really simple tool, but, but if, if, if students have difficulty, you know, interpreting a 2D or a 3D paper or digital um, contour topographic lines, you know, the, um, the HIPSO layer, for example, they can look at this and say, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, I love all of these kinds of visualizations. I'm right with you. Um, being sensitive to your time, though, um, I just wanted to touch on a couple of last bits, if you don't mind. And you, you touched on this yeah, a little bit about your advice to a new professional in the field when you talked about, you know, attitudes to have going into the, your employer. But if you want to you just kind of sum up um, or, or add to your advice to a new professional in, in this field. I still consider myself a new professional in this field as well. But I've just, I, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but my goal is really not having a goal. You know, I go into it. I showed up at my first job. I didn't, you know, I knew I liked GIS because I like maps. That's great. But how can I benefit my company with maps? And I was able to look at everything with an open mind and see where they were lacking, where I was lacking to get them there and how I can do that. And so, you know, maybe it's taking your geospatial perspective to a place of business that has never had one before. You know, not everybody, not that it's, not that we don't need city planners and GIS analysts, but there's more to GIS than GIS analysts. I, I, you know, mm -hmm. like, I, don't, I don't use GIS all day, every day, but I do use it enough that I would consider myself a geospatial professional. And there's, I just feel that every industry in some way could be a geospatial industry or at least have a geospatial mm -hmm. niche mm -hmm. inside that industry and to not limit yourself to, you know, going to school, getting a GIS degree because you like maps and then just only looking at jobs that use GIS in the title. Very good point. There's, And sometimes it, it takes, and this is a bit scary, but let's say, you know, you and I and others listening have probably read articles about, you know, X percent of jobs by the end of this, this 2020s decade have not even been invented yet. Maybe it takes a person to go to an organization saying, okay, you don't have anybody here that is doing anything with geospatial technology, but let me show you how I can help you meet your mission, your goals, save you money, be more efficient, be more eco-friendly with the skills and abilities that I have. Maybe it's, it's you going to that organization. Again, admitting that it's, it's a bit scary if, there's, if they actually don't have a, a position advertised, you going there and saying, this is what I can offer you. But maybe in some cases, that's what it's going to take because you know, to solve all of these complex issues of our 21st century world, we're going to need exactly what you're saying, Blaze, I believe, geospatially enabled organizations. And that takes the geo geospatially enabled people to bring those organizations to realization that yeah this is valuable and and yeah, and that per, so. that organization might go to that individual and say well why do we need this kind of thing i've got google maps on my phone why do i need anything else well let me show you what 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 this can actually do for your organization so i really like what you're saying here you know appreciate the comments hey blaze what what about this do you have a favorite map or a book favorite map or a favorite book that you'd like to share 
I mean, my first favorite map that comes to mind is the 3D diorama. It just was such a great influence on me. Mm-hmm. If I had to pick another favorite map, it was, I don't know, I don't remember who the author is. I'm sure I can find it. But it was an old 1800s map, and it had, you know, when, when we hadn't fully mapped everything out yet. And on the bottom of the map, I believe, it had, you know, the height of the mountains. And it had a, a, a mountain that didn't exist as the tallest mountain in the world. Ah. And from what I've read, it took a little while to kind of break this myth, break the myth that mm-hmm. this mountain didn't exist. <laughs> and it's just really easy to see what's on a map and believe it. And I just really like that this map was now 21st century, obviously wrong. It was so believable back then. It yeah. reminds me, Blaze, of the North America map, actually maps, plural, showing California as an island. Remember those? And, and yes, they had these yes. accounts from sailors that said, we sailed around California. We know it's an island. And so it persisted for, I believe, 120-ish years on maps until it finally evolved into the shape uh, with the peninsula on the south end. But, uh, yeah, it kind of reminds me of that. Let me ask you this, Uh, you know, many of us have this wonderful image of Alaska, and I've been up there a couple times, once for the USGS and once on vacation, and absolutely loved it, of course. What's the best thing about actually living there? Because I'm sure it's, it's, there's, there's some differences, right, between visiting and actually living there, but what's the best thing about living in Alaska? Boy, that's a tough question for me at least right now it is the daylight you know in the summer it's really easy to get off work and lose mm-hmm. track of time outside until 11 p.m or midnight and in the winter the days are short but you get hour-long sunsets every day mm-hmm. it's the way the curvature mm-hmm. of the earth and the sunset takes so long that and it's you know it's really easy to come up and visit and be kind of amazed at how long the day is most people are saying that because they don't come in winter. <laughs> and it's, but then they get to go home, and they get to go back to their regular sleep schedule. Not up here where you're, you know, 19 hours of daylight in the summer. And there is just no sense of normalcy there. Yeah. Summer, winter, you, it's really bizarre to experience months on end of constant change of daylight. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, yeah, especially uh, you, where you've got this rapidly increasing and decreasing number of hours of sunlight, uh, you know, in, in March and October-ish, you know, right in there. Yeah. I yeah, also right wonder, you know, is it a challenge when, okay, so you're out till midnight and, you know, June, July, August, and you're, uh-oh, I've got to wake up at 6 o'clock and go to work. <laughs> is that a big shock to the system, or do you just say, hey, you know, in the summer, I'm just not going to get that much sleep because I want to be able to take advantage of the natural beauty and uh, be out hiking until midnight. I would say that a lot of people have taken that attitude towards it, especially, you know, June, July, around the solstice. Mm -hmm. And sometime around August when you start to not, when you start to be able you know, see the stars again at some point in night, pretty much everyone's going to have some downtime where they crash and they're going to have to make up. You're just physically worn out. <laughs> because you are chasing the daylight and it's really hard to it's really hard to tell yourself to go to bed when the sun is still inches off the horizon. Mhm. Mhm. So have you been over to Nome, Kotzebue, way over there northwest? I 
Unfortunately, I have not been out to Northwest Alaska yet. There is a coal field out there, but it's, you know, as far as extraction, it's dormant right now. You know, it's just so remote and so environmentally challenging to Mm -hmm. get to live there, work there. Not to mention try and permit a coal mine in the Arctic is just a nightmare for a company to consider, I would imagine. Um, I've got some friends out in Nome, and it sounds like it's very different. You know, they deal with a lot of sea ice issues and Mm -hmm. weather that the weather in Alaska has changed my mind of what bad weather is. You know, massive windstorms. We've had a lot of rain in December this year in Alaska. You can call it climate change or just weather. Overall trends are it's getting warmer, significantly Mm -hmm. warmer, fast. Northwest Alaska also has a lot of draw you know there's a lot of minerals out there um red dog mine is up northeast of Kotzebue, i believe mm. and that's mm-hmm. the largest zinc mine in the world i did not know that and, okay interesting yeah. i'm learning a lot from you today uh, and and you know touching on that last thing and i'm sure that um you deal with this with, uh, you know, maybe new employees that are up there. You probably have a big safety br- uh, briefing, right? Not just on the job, but people moving there that, you know, you need to, it's not just a, a good thing to know about about weather changes, but your life could depend on it, right? You really have to be tough and resilient and be prepared. I mean, even here in Colorado, you know, uh, where I am and where you used to live, as you know, it's, it, you think, oh, you know, it's the lower 48, I can go in the mountains and I'm going to be fine. But every year, right, there people get into dangerous situations because they're not prepared. They're up there at high altitude. They're wearing a, a T-shirt, and all of a sudden it'll snow in July, you know, that kind of stuff. But up by you, you know, that whole situation times 50, times 100, right, where you're constantly having yeah. to – and probably not just the cold extremes, but I would think the heat extremes too in the summertime, hot – and it does get hot up there. I, I know it gets hot as a geographer. I understand the, the swings that you've got. And so, you know, conversely, in the, in, you know, you have enough water and you're hiking around in June and you've got these long daylight hours, et cetera. Yeah, it's, it just brings a whole new set of challenges. When I, I've driven up here twice when we were moving up that process. Mm-hmm. And I just, it just really struck me like Colorado on steroids. You know, the <laughs> rivers in Colorado, we call them creeks. Yep. The, Mountains are just, they're not as tall. We don't have 50, some 14ers. I think there's only four mountains, four or five mountains in the state that are over 14,000 feet. But they, you know, in Anchorage, you sit here at sea level and you look up at 5,000, 6,000 foot peaks. And tree lines only 2,500 or so. And so you really get that feel of just big, everything's big. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's kind of awe-inspiring to take that in on a daily basis. I admire you, Blaze. You're an innovator. You're a lifelong learner. You appreciate the natural beauty. You're doing all that you can to uh, ensure that the earth is as well protected as it can be um, in your field. And you're, I think, a really great example of a person that, uh, you know, embraces, yeah, new tools, new technologies, but yeah, thinking outside the box, challenging yourself. And so really appreciate all the comments that you've shared uh, today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a learning experience for me, too, to sit down and think about some of these topics and questions. Well, I know the listeners really appreciate it. And we've got um, a, a, a small paragraph that accompanies this 
uh, interview. Appreciate the links that you shared there, Blaze. I just wish you all the best success in the future. Continue being the inspiring person that you are. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for doing this podcast and working with the magazine. It's great, great reference and reading material that more people should take advantage of, I feel. We had Blaze Andromeda Folk on today from the Alaska Department of Natural Resources. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.